The saga of the Manchester United sale has maybe reached a conclusion. Plus, the NFL is pondering something unprecedented for a future Super Bowl, and we're going to take a look at the international baseball landscape with reporter Sean Spradling. It's Monday, October 16th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Nearly a year after the Glazer family announced that they were exploring a sale of Manchester United, Jim Ratcliffe is buying a 25% stake in the team, allowing the Glazer family to retain majority control and bringing an end to one of the stranger chapters in Premier League history. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author David Rumsey. Welcome, David. Hey, Owen. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So what's your reaction to this Man U news? Yeah, it's just been, like you said, a crazy saga. Almost a year ago, the Glazers said they would explore some things which could have meant potentially selling the clubs. If you hear my tone of voice, a lot of unknowns. And that's what Man U fans have been dealing with for the past year, really. And now we have this, uh, you know, he's coming in, this Ratcliffe, who's been wanting to buy a majority stake in the club for a long time. Not really getting the majority stake, although it kind of looks like he could be in the future. It seems pretty on par for this Manchester United sales saga, if you ask me. Right, yeah. It it kind of feels right in a way that this is ending in a kind of like half conclusion where he's not buying a full stake, but he could at some point. And um, that seems to be, you know, on the path. And even though it's a minority stake, apparently he's going to have some amount of control over what goes on on the field or who they sign or how much they have to spend or something like that. So this might, um, you know, assuage the concerns of the Man United fans who were protesting outside of games for a while, prompting the initial sale, but we shall see on that front. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of uh, another step in, and and maybe it leads to something, but I'll be interested to see as more details, official details uh, emerge from this deal. Is there any kind of timeline in place? Is there any guarantees that he'll increase his stake in the club? Because I think this is kind of seen as something that the Glazers probably really wanted all, all along was to not give up full control of the club. I mean, it's, it's valuable. These soccer clubs all around the world, especially Premier League clubs, keep going up in value. Why would you want to get rid of that entire asset when it's probably going to be worth more than $10 billion one day? So why not hold on to it? And it makes sense that he would want to come in and get a piece of it. But yes, it, it we finally have some sort of conclusion to this part of the process. Uh, I bet it will we'll keep going on, though. Yeah, and then that speaks to what we refer to as the Glazer family, which is six siblings. Uh, Joel and Avram are, you know, seen as the actual kind of controlling owners here, um, and they are the ones who want to hang on to the club. Whereas the other four siblings are the ones who have been saying we're not really involved here. We kind of just want to cash out on this enormous valuation, and so this is sort of a have your cake and eat it too moment, though. Again, we'll we'll see how that all plays out and, and if, you know, the protests fire up again or, or what. Right. And I think it's interesting for Jim Ratcliffe in that he has been pursuing this and pursuing this. And he's kind of even relent a little bit. And I said, fine, OK, I'll take a minority stake. I'll take 25 percent of the club if that helps me get in the door, because you've had some other bidders that 
along the way were saying, no, we don't want a minority stake. We want, we want it all or we want nothing as far as getting a majority uh, control in the club. So it, it's a nice um, reversal of fortunes for him to just, OK, well, I get in and, and maybe that uh, appeases some fans, like you said. But I, I still think it leaves a lot um, to be desired for people that were wanting the Glazers to sell the, the club entirely. But it, it is a first step. And who knows, maybe that is really their intentions and they just want to you know, let this play out for a little bit longer. Yeah, you mentioned other bidders. The The main one was Sheikh Jassim, a Qatari royal, who ironically, at least to me, um, was backed out at the end because um, you just couldn't agree on a valuation with the Glazers. So the the reporting is that the the valuation of the team is between 6.3 billion and 7.3 billion US dollars mm-hmm. uh, for this stake sale. Um, a lot of people thought Sheikh Jassim was going to end up with the team just because, um, you know, it's he, he, they've got access to so much money that, you know, what, what's another extra billion? Uh, apparently an extra billion was was too much. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. Sometimes you have these super rich people that come in and will buy the team no matter what the valuation is, just so they can get their hands on a a big sporting asset like this. And that turned out to not be the case. And uh, Ratcliffe is going to pay a lot of money for his stake in the club. And I suspect it will continue to go up if he wants to sell it in five or 10 years or if he retains it for longer but yeah you're, you're absolutely right it's been a, a crazy process and uh, there's so much politics and behind closed doors dealings that goes on with these types of team sales especially for english premier league soccer clubs uh, it's really fascinating to try to dissect yeah yeah and seems like there will be more details at some point down the road david rumsey thanks so much for joining us thank you owen NFL games in London, especially ones involving the Jaguars, will be an annual event for the foreseeable future, and now there is talk of taking it a step further. The league is floating the idea of one day hosting the Super Bowl there, which would be the first outside the continental US, let alone on another continent. And there's a certain logic to this. You wouldn't want to play an earlier round playoff game there, because those happen on teams' home fields and could disadvantage the winning team in the next round due to the extra travel. However, there would be some real issues. The time zone difference would be awkward. An 8 p.m. game in London would start at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. The weather, also not ideal. The NFL leans towards Super Bowl cities that are warm and sunny in February, such as Las Vegas, which will host the next one. On the date of the most recent Super Bowl, London was cloudy and in the 40s, which is historically what one expects around that time of year. Furthermore, the Super Bowl allows the NFL to show some love toward one of its home cities, and going across the pond would mean taking a year off from that. But this move would be about showing the UK that the NFL is ready to take the relationship to the next level. Because once you have the Super Bowl, the only way to go up from there is a full-time team. On Sunday, Iowa smashed the attendance record for a women's basketball game, and the NCAA season hasn't even started. The Hawkeyes and their star Caitlin Clark played an outdoor game at Kinnick Stadium, home to the university's football team against DePaul. The previous attendance record for a women's basketball game was set in 2002 by the NCAA championship game between Connecticut and Oklahoma at the Alamo Dome, home of the San Antonio Spurs, which drew 29,619. The exhibition game in Iowa beat that by almost double. Over 50,000 tickets were sold. Women's college games at football stadiums may become a trend after the major success of this game plus the volleyball doubleheader in Nebraska in August, which drew 92,003 fans to Memorial Stadium, setting the world record for attendance at a women's sporting event. 
Proceeds from the basketball game went to the university's Steed Family Children's Hospital, which overlooks the stadium, meaning that patients there will be able to watch the game from the windows, and Iowa fans have a very sweet tradition of waving en masse to the patients there during games. Baseball appears to be coming to the Olympics in 2028, and 17-year-old Rintaro Sensaki is making the unprecedented move of foregoing a career in Japan's Nippon Professional Baseball to go to college in the U.S. to fast-track his path to MLB. I spoke to international baseball reporter Sean Spradling about what all that means for the global baseball landscape, and that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by international baseball reporter Sean Spradling. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Owen. How's it going today? So we'll get to our topics in a moment. First, I just want to uh, learn a little bit about you. Um, how did you become, uh, how did international baseball become your thing? Yeah, uh, it's a good question because long story short, it, it happened just out of nowhere, pretty much. Like I grew up a baseball fan. I always knew that I wanted to work in baseball eventually, still trying to make that more of a reality. But uh, last year when they announced the WBC was happening last summer, um, coming into this year, it would be back uh, for the first time in six years. I was super excited, looked up all of this. Like I just did a bunch of research like, oh, I wonder who's going to be on the teams, what the what the WBC is going to look like. I don't even know who's playing. And there was no information whatsoever. So uh, there were no rosters, no players or coaches or, or teams that talked about it. So uh, I decided to just kind of, I guess, take it upon myself to start doing some research and digging uh, a little bit deeper, reaching out to some federations around the world, um, reaching out to some por- uh, reporters from like the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, Puerto Rico, and then like East Asian reporters, um, just to hear what like kind of buzz there was around the WBC. Found out that it's the biggest thing in the baseball world outside of the US. And so there weren't really any English speaking reporters on Twitter specifically that were focused solely on the WBC. There were a lot from the Dominican and like Japan, Korea. Um, so I sort of used my platform as a um, almost like an aggregator to bring together international baseball news, specifically the WBC at first, uh, talking about all 20 national teams around the world. And yeah, then the WBC happened from there. I mean, it it, it was a huge success, obviously. It was the, like the greatest WBC we've had so far. Um, and yeah, I've just kind of been reporting on international baseball and continuing that WBC beat throughout the year. Yeah, I mean the um I think one of the reasons it was such a big success is that it was such a huge deal to the players and and a lot of the countries involved that um you know this was sort of it did feel like the baseball world cup which would have seemed like a preposterous statement, you know, 2 years ago. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really interesting because like I said, you go to Japan and they are preparing for the World Baseball Classic like three years in advance, like they already have, uh, they're already recruiting their manager for the next year and talking about what their rosters are going to look like. The Dominican Republic's already uh, announced that Nelson Cruz is going to be back as their GM coming uh, into 2026. So you have like these countries that are so proud to um, represent their home nation and these players that come to the U S to play for these MLB teams. But 
they're they're even more excited to be able to show like where they're from to show their culture and their play with their brothers that they grew up playing with and it's it's a huge deal in so many different countries and i think the u.s is finally starting to catch up or at least realize how big of a deal it is around the world and this was the first wbc that we saw like the backing was not only from the fans but also from the players like the player like we had everybody i mean we had otani and trout and mookie all these all these like superstars play so it was a huge success yeah yeah very cool and uh with that in mind uh the so baseball it looks like it's going to be added to the la olympics in 2028 uh i guess the next wbc will be 2027 if i'm doing the math right there um so yeah, what's your reaction to that news, first of all? Yeah, it's really exciting uh, because we're not going to have it next year. The next Olympics in 2024 will not have it in Paris. Uh, the next WBC will be 2026, actually. And it's it's all because of like COVID. They right, changed right, okay. the years in the, WBC, in the uh, CBA, the MLB CBA, of when the WBC will be played. It'll eventually get back on a four-year gap, but for now it's three years in between. Got it, okay. Um, but in uh, LA in 2028, they'll also have baseball, which is um, really exciting. I don't. It was there wasn't too much doubt that it would be back in the Olympics, at least when it came to the U.S. the next time. Um, but it's really cool that they're going to have it again because we're going to go another uh, Olympic cycle without it in Paris. Um, it was a ton of fun to watch it in Tokyo. We still do not have MLB players playing in it, but you can have professional baseball players play so you got minor leaguers or for example like all of samurai japan is going to be all of their best players in npb minus like the guys in mlb so it you have a ton of elite elite players a lot of high-end prospects that even play julio rodriguez played in the last uh, olympics so it's it's definitely going to be a competition that you'll want to watch yeah, I mean, that is kind of the funny thing with this is that the WBC was scheduled around the baseball season to not interfere with it. You know, there were still issues out. Obviously, the um, the hitters, was, the hitters were the superstars, at least when it came to Americans and the pitchers were some good pitchers, but uh, not the same caliber with the Olympics. It'll be in July. And that's smack in the middle of the MLB season. I know the NHL in the past has taken a, a break for the Olympics um, with MLB. It seems unlikely, but I also have to think that some players are, are going to want to be in there. Yeah. That's actually funny that you say that because I was just recently reading an article that was written back in 2021, right before the Olympics happened last time, just to hear it, it was from, I think Kyle Glazer, baseball America. He was talking about how like just the different players reactions to being able to play or not being able to play in the Olympics. Harper was all on board. He was like, we need to take a break in the summer. We need to be able to play. We want to represent our country. And he was he was actually supposed to play in the WBC as well if he didn't get hurt. Trout was one that he had cited and said he was a little bit more reserved. Like, uh, I don't know if that'd be, we'd be able to take a break in the summer, but it'd be cool if we could. So I would be really interested to hear what the players think about that. I think, I mean, if there was ever a way that we could, I, I mean, the Olympics are, that's the world stage as well. And for it, it's even a bigger deal for like smaller countries because there's a lot more funding that funnels into those federations um, for Olympic sports. So if, for example, like Great Britain or Italy or 
um, even like Curacao, who might uh, play in the WBC next time independent from the Dutch team, they don't have a ton of funding. So being able to participate in the Olympics, they're just naturally by participating going to be able to have a lot more funding for their baseball uh, nation. So yeah, I I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I'd be surprised if we get MLB players. They've always put the restriction. They've never allowed MLB players, anyone on the 40-man rosters. But I mean, I'd love to see it if we could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you there. I I hope somehow it can happen because, I mean, it will be this weird thing where, I mean, similar to past World Baseball Classics, where, you know, some countries are are sending their all-stars and and the U.S. It's just like kind of whoever was around. Um, Anyway, I guess, yeah, that's that's a TBD for for a a few years from now. I want to hop over to a different topic, which is that um, we just saw a 17-year-old Rintaro Sasaki forge a new path from Japan to Major League Baseball, saying he's not going to play in Nippon professional baseball, will instead go to college in the U.S. with the intent of eventually entering the MLB draft. What's your reaction to that news? Yeah, when I saw this, and it happened since he's he's from Japan, this news broke at like 11, I'm in Texas, like 11 o'clock central time at night. It was it was in the middle of the night right before I was going to bed. And I, I flipped out because he is, he's literally, he is the consensus number one overall prospect in Japan, was, was supposed to go number one in NPB's draft. Um, he is a generational power hitter in high school in Japan. No Japanese player has ever hit as many home runs as he has in in high school. I think he hit 140 home runs in his high school career, which is ridiculous numbers. Um, and I mean, he's I think he's six foot. He's 250 pounds. If you see him, um, he is just he's a a beast. <laughs> he's he's just muscled up, but he's just he's thick. And you see, I mean, he's got so much power. I think his raw power is probably more than most ML, uh, most high school players in the U.S. as well. Um, but this is a huge, almost like groundbreaking move for him to make. It, it shocked a ton of people in both the U.S. and in Japan because this is this is something that's never been done at for this level of athlete out of Japan, like a number one overall type prospect. He decided he's going to come to the U.S. to play in college. Um, he's being scouted and linked, has been linked to Vanderbilt and, and Cal in California. Um, and I, I mean, I think he's going D1. I, I think he could do, go the JUCO route and shorten that to uh, kind of speed his way to an MLB organization. But I haven't heard as much talk on that end. But just the fact that you have such a high-end prospect just choosing to come over to the college system to go into the MLB draft is pretty unprecedented. Yeah, and on that unprecedented note, should we think of this more as a one-off thing or a potential new path for Japanese players? Yeah, I think it could open up a path. I don't see... I don't know how likely it is that we see like a huge influx of Japanese players coming over to college in the U.S. The reason I say that is because it it's pretty discouraged in Japan to, to go that route. Um, there is uh, when he comes over here into the U- to the U.S. and goes through U.S. college system, he's going to go into the MLB draft. If he makes it to the minors and in then into MLB. It's great for him. Like he, that it's a huge, it's a gamble. But if he, if he makes it, that's amazing. Um, if he does not, he's not really going to be welcome back to NPB. They 
they highly discourage you from going to a different league. Your his high school is actually most likely going to get penalized a pretty big amount for him leaving, um, and they just don't look very fondly on it. So. Japan's all about respect. Um, they're all about like pride in their own country as well. And they have the, I mean, they have the second best league in the world when it comes to professional baseball. And he chose to come to the U S to play in college. But if he would have chose to go into NPB, he would have been developed as a professional already at 18 years old. So you might see a couple more players do this, but well, I think he's probably probably going to be more or less a uh, like a test run for for athletes in high school over there. Yeah, yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense, and it, it's kind of an interesting moment for the relationship between MLB and NPB uh, because um, it's it's always been a unique relationship that that the U.S. has had with with Japan and its league and its players, um, where. They the U.S. could treat Japan like you know the D- Dominican Republic or Mexico or other countries where they source a lot of players from there and there are leagues there, but it's it's all about getting to the U.S. Whereas in Japan, NPB is very well established. You can play, you know, have a have a great career there and and you know be MLB level, but you know never feel the need to go to MLB, um, and. I'm wondering, and there's always, I think, that tension of, you know, it's always been kind of a a respectful relationship where people don't cross lines that they could. Um, And and I'm wondering if at some point enough lines will get crossed that you'll get this kind of, um, um, you know, tragedy of the commons thing almost where it's like, well, if they're doing it, why shouldn't we be doing it? You know, if our division rivals are are trying to, you know, poach players from, from NPB, um, we should be too. It's just a competitive competitive advantage thing. I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself here, but do you see any you know potential cascade in that direction? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I I know that MLB teams have scouts over there full time in Japan and in Korea um, that are kind of over the whole East Asian region, so they're always watching and lurking around. Um, I, I think that there's always going to be an eye on Japanese baseball. It's hard because like you said, it is already, it's a totally independent, fully established league. It's the second best league in the, in the world. Some of their very best players never come to MLB and never have the desire to, um, a lot of, a lot of them do, but uh, many of them just want to stay home and make the millions of dollars that they can while living at home, being able to speak their own language. So it's, it, it really almost is like more of a player by player thing. Um, some players do want to come over. Some don't like Yuki Yanagita, for example, he is probably a better hitter than anyone we saw in his, at his peak. He's a little bit older now, better hitter than anyone we saw on Japan's team in the WBC other than Otani. And he, he played his whole career in, uh, in Japan and never came over to the U S and has had a, a great career. So I don't know. I, I think that as there is more visibility of NPB's league over in the States, or at least in the West, there's going to be more desire to have those players come over. Anytime that I tweet about a Japanese player, everybody's like, he's a Met or he's a Cardinal. Oh, he's definitely a, a Yankee. So clearly like there, there's one fans want there to be more of a crossover. And I think there will be, I just don't know if it's going to be like a, a huge groundbreaking thing any more than it already has been. Yeah. All right. 
Very interesting stuff, Sean Spradling. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Leave us a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. If you have any questions or comments, shoot us an email at today at frontofficesports.com or just find me on Twitter. I'm at a one point Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.